Welcome to the Mom Manual. Motherhood doesn't come with instructions, but it should. We are on a mission to highlight ordinary moms doing extraordinary things to build the ultimate mom manual. Every week, I have the distinct honor of speaking with women about the lessons they've learned and the inspiration that got them to where they are today. Join us for a conversation that will spark creativity, provide actionable tips, and celebrate the ordinary and extraordinary moments of motherhood. The Mom Manual starts now. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. We have a super exciting guest today, Dr. Sarah Mitchell. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We are so happy to have you. Um, Sarah and I have known each other for two, three years, a long time. I think it's, it's got to be three, maybe even pushing four, because I remember oh I was so excited when our, your product first came out. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be big. And I reached out to you because you're also a local mom, an entrepreneur. Yes. I was like, we got to connect. This is amazing what you're doing. Bay Area Business Women. So Sarah, can you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Yeah. So I'm a chiropractor by training, but really found my passion in empowering parents to teach their little ones to sleep and parent confidently day and night as a sleep and parenting consultant. And I've been doing this since 2013 when my first son just, you know, wouldn't sleep. Actually, that was 2011. And then my daughter came along and I was like, okay, I'm definitely not repeating those pitfalls again and started sleep teaching her from really, you know, a couple of weeks in. And I'm from Canada originally, but I'm located in the Bay Area. I'm also, I'm the founder of Helping Babies Sleep and the author of the Amazon book, The Helping Baby Sleep Method, The Art and Science of Teaching Your Baby to Sleep, because it really is balancing, you know, biology and behavior. And I'm also a member of the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. And uh, I'm super excited to talk to you today about newborn sleep. Sarah, we are so excited to have you here. And what I really love is you do come at it from a perspective of that sleep is biological. And I love that you really bring in the science of things. Today, we're going to focus specifically on getting that newborn zero to three months, getting them to sleep. Sarah has some awesome takeaways for us. So do you want to jump into the first one? Yeah, the first one is really about getting you and your kiddo on a flexible schedule, knowing that you are actually in charge of deciding when sleep and feeding should be happening. Now, it's not rigid like that, but the reason I I call it the flexible schedule is the idea that I could not read the cues. All the books say, read the cues, watch for sleepy signs, watch for hunger signs. But what I find that I did, what so many of my clients do, it's very easy to mistake the signs of fatigue for hunger and keep feeding back to sleep. That's what I did, right? So the idea with the flexible schedule is saying, okay, we just had a great full feed. That's another one of the pillars of the helping baby sleep method is being an intentional feeder so that that helps you be a better detective in your, your, your long game. Right. So when your baby feeds and they take a full feed projecting out in the newborn stage, okay, my next feed, feeding window is around three hours from now. So around that time, I'm gonna watch for feeding cues. If I see feeding cues before that, I might be thinking, hmm, what else could this be? And, or did I really have a full feed, right? Cause when you don't have full feeds, you take these little short feeds all through the day, you land in what I call the snacking cycle where your kiddo is never really full and they just keep eating 24 seven, essentially. Sarah, so the- for, for people who might not know, what are you defining as a, a hunger cue? A hunger cue could be um, rooting, smacking, putting their hands in their mouth, starting to look fussy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Thank you. 
So the idea with the flexible schedule then is kind of projecting out being proactive rather than retroactive. So when I was doing this the first time, my retroactivity was like, I think that's a hunger cue or maybe it's a tire cue. I'm not really sure. And then I would feed and he would take like this, you know, five sucks and pass out. And I'd be like, oh, does that count as a feed? I'm not really sure. So now I stay in this like vicious cycle of self-doubt for the next time when he's fussy, is it hunger or is it fatigue or what is it? Or he falls asleep with the rest and sleeps for like five minutes and then wakes up. And then you're like, well, is that a nap or not a nap? I'm not really sure. So trying to get people out of this like vicious cycle of snacking and self-doubting by implementing this flexible schedule, having feeding windows and the same with sleeping time. And that's what those awake times are based on. Awake times are from when a child wakes up to be when they need to be back asleep. And these are related to sleep pressure. And this number is based on observation of kids over time, the hundreds and thousands of kids over time, is how long can they be asleep or be awake? And in the newborn stage, you know, most kiddos can't stay awake more than about an hour and a half. And that's by three months. You're one month old and two month old. They might be ready to sleep 45 minutes to an hour after waking up. And so when they're waking up, you're looking at the clock noting, okay, it's 11. I need to get them back asleep at least by 1230, potentially even 12 o'clock. And what I find happens to a lot of people, and I don't know if you did this, Tara, but like you're kind of like waiting, hanging around, watching for cues, not really sure. And you might not even see them. And then you look at the clock and it's been two hours. Now you try and get them down and they're like overtired and it's harder. Does that happen to you? it, you know, it's, it's really funny. As you were talking, I was thinking about this, um, this funny story. So I, I actually have this, it's a text message from my husband and it is printed out and it is in my daughter's baby book because it was so funny. He, um, I was out of town one morning for work and he fed her. And I think, I can't remember the exact amounts, but at the time she was on maybe four ounces of milk. So he said she had the four ounces and then he, he thought she was rooting. And so he gave her, I believe another four ounces and he still thought she was rooting. And then she threw it all up, like every, like immediately projectile vomit. And he said, oh, we used to call her Dolly. And he said, poor Dolly. And it was just so funny to me. Like, why would you feed her that much? That's like three meals. Um, yeah. but <laughs> I, I think it's maybe, you know, he didn't know, but, and it was our first, but I do think it's sometimes, like you said, it's really hard to say, are they tired? Are they, do they have a poopy diet? Like, why are they crying? Are they gassy? Are they fussy? Like, especially as a first time mom with signs that you haven't seen before. And even as a fourth time mom, like my fourth had colic, my first three did not. So I was just bewildered why he was, and he also wasn't sleeping and he was my problem, maybe all the things, but he was just crying all the time. And I couldn't, I didn't really know why, um, so it, I, I do think it's really, it's really hard. So the first thing is like identifying like, and it's different for every baby, right? I mean, each baby presents differently or is it kind of universal? Like you can see those cues and you'll know what they are. Oh, that's a tough question to answer. I mean, I'll go into homes and I'll have kids like for the newborn visits, but they don't show any kind of signs. They don't have any signs. And then there's other kids that are just so overtired all the time. They always look tired. And so parents are trying to get them down for a nap, like 20 minutes after napping. Well, that's going to be really hard, right? Cause that sleep pressure has dropped. Right. So, um, so that's why, so your husband didn't know what to do because he hadn't honed his other parenting skills. Right. So this is like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I think she's hungry. That's my easiest go-to. I'll keep doing that. Right. Right. And that's what I did with my son. I just kept nursing him back to sleep. Like he was 20 pounds by this time he was four months because I just kept feeding him back to sleep, breastfeeding him back to sleep. Right. Right. And totally overtired. Yeah. So the idea with this flexible schedule, it gives you space to hone those other parenting skills, to try something else. And how do, how do kids learn? 
right? You learn with the same response to the same stimulus or situation over and over again. So what I did was I inadvertently taught my son that the boob was a soother. And anytime he was fussy, tired, bored, he wanted to nurse. And I see that with so many of my clients too. We we think we're, you know, we don't want to ever hear them cry or fuss and muting the tears is, you know, what breastfeeding does frequently. Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? It's just that over time it can become troublesome. Right. No, that definitely makes sense. I, when you say like creating a flexible schedule, in my mind, that means that we are, you know, if we have four kids, we're allowing baby to take a nap in the car. Is that what you're meaning? Oh, it is. Okay. Well, uh, to me, yeah, if you want to take naps, especially in the newborn stage, they're the most portable they'll ever be. But the idea with the flexible schedule is people want, usually people want strict schedules. They want to know that nine o'clock is nap time. One o'clock is nap time. Three o'clock is nap time. Unfortunately, at these early ages, like that's really hard to achieve because you can't control how long your child naps for. And that's what those fixed schedules are based on. So it's fixed versus flexible. The idea with flexible is every day, your first nap time is probably going to change a little bit because it's going to be based on when your kiddo woke up from the day. So it might be nine today. It might be nine 30 tomorrow, might be 10 the next day, depending on how that nighttime sleep went. And when that morning wake up. So perhaps even a better term for it, Tara, I've been thinking about this lately might be even like a rolling schedule. Yeah. Right. That you're rolling it, rolling it, depending on your kiddo's needs that day. Because if you have a kiddo, even you know at, at any age, if they cut their nap short because they pooped themselves awake, right? Yeah. You're not going to be able to get them back down after that. It's very difficult. And so then your next nap time should likely shift a little bit to- You um, should tack it on and make it like longer. So if, yeah. if you're talking about doing a rolling schedule for zero to three months, like how many naps are I mean, if, if we Mm. were fixed, what would be the ideal nap cadence? And then if we're talking about rolling, what, what Mm. are the hours, the amount we'd be looking for? So let's say less two months and less, you're going to be awake 45 minutes to an hour. Okay. Okay. And so, yes, that might look like wake up, feed, burp, go back to sleep. Okay. If you have long naps, that works out really nicely because they basically nap, wake up, feed, get them back down. Where it gets tricky is when people have shorter naps or 45 minute naps. There's an assumption. A lot of people, what they do is they, oh, I have to feed on every wake up. You don't have to feed on every wake up, right? You're using those, that like three hour window. Ideally we're keeping sleeping and feeding separate because when you have feeding and sleeping at the same time, you have competing needs of fatigue versus hunger. So one of those might get cut short, meaning that they might fall asleep before they've taken a full feed and that can launch you into that snacking cycle again. Right. Right. Or they might feed in and doze at the breast and then you go to put them down and they wake up and you fall into that whole transfer kind of issue that people have. I I love all those memes online where they they show the parent like placing the baby in the crib and then doing some kind of ninja rollout. Yeah. That's a worst case. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you work on, you know, you can do gentle sleep shaping between four and like eight to 10 weeks really well to avoid feeding to sleep and rocking to sleep and putting them down awake. That's what I teach in the helping newborn sleep class and in the book, right? Because what happens around three months is your sleep cycles actually change. Newborn sleep cycles look very different than babies. Okay. And what happens is in the newborn stage, you don't really have light sleep, but then around three months, you start to have light sleep. And that's when people are trying to transfer and they sense where their, their caveman brain is protecting them. They're like, danger, danger, we're being removed from the warm, comforting place. And they right. wake up, right? right? But if you work on that, if you work on getting them to fall asleep in the first place between four and eight weeks, you avoid that transfer completely. And then they're used to falling asleep in that bass net when they start waking up to the world that much more around three and four months. 
So does this mean you can actually start sleep training at four weeks or just putting sleep independently at four weeks? I don't call it sleep training because it has a certain connotation. I call it gentle newborn sleep shaping. You're shaping it. You're still helping, but you're using the goals of the newborn, the helping newborn sleep method is to one, keep your baby well rested, right? And then two, use methods that you can maintain over time because you can't maintain rocking, feeding, sleeping on people long term. And if you understand that sleep's a learned habit, you want to be working on that from, from the very beginning. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that I had mentioned at the beginning of the call that I love the most about the way you teach, like, what are we calling it? Sleep shaping, not sleep training, but that it's a mm-hmm. learned habit. And I remember yes. one time you used the analogy and you said, when you first feed a baby that the first time they have, um, rice cereal or, you know, some kind of puree, they push it out of their mouth and they don't know how to swallow it and, and eat it. And then they take a few scoops and more and more, and then they learn and then, they're, you know, eventually moving up to eating a steak, but yeah. at the beginning, they don't know how to do it. And I think as parents, we believe our babies are born and sleep is a part of life. If you're not sleeping, you, you will die literally. So, um, baby must inherently know how to do it, but they don't, <laughs> we have teach to teach them. them. Yeah. We teach them in that four to eight week period. We're imprinting it. And the other analogy I like is let's say Tara, I say to you tonight, you cannot sleep in your favorite position and I'm going to take away your pillow. Imagine how uncomfortable and annoying that would be for you tonight. Right. But you would struggle. And that's what sleep training is, right? Your kid of trying to figure out a different way of falling asleep, just being more primitive and crying because that's how they're using their, you know, that's how they use their, their voice to communicate, but you would learn a new way to fall asleep because it is a learned habit. Yeah. And I think that rolls really good into your next tip, which is how to know when a nap is long enough. Like yeah. We're learning and we're teaching this sleeping. Like then how are we knowing the nap is long enough and what are we doing to help them with that? Yeah. So research shows that one daytime sleep cycle is roughly five, zero 50 minutes, but often anecdotally, this shows up as a 45 minute nap, 45 minute And in the newborn stage, if you're not getting through a 45 minute nap, you want to ask yourself, hmm, what's bugging them? Why did they not even make it through that cycle? Is it that they were overtired? So they stayed awake too long before they went down. Is it that they have gas? A very common one is the need to burp. That's one of the most common ones. I'll say, pick, pick up your kiddo, see if you can get a burp out and then coax them back down to sleep. Okay. The other thing you're watching for is what's my baby's disposition on waking up. So if you had a four, like one 45 minute nap, not a big deal. If you're only getting 45 minute naps at this age, it's like, hmm, what am I missing here? Right. Cause it is days and nights are so tied together. It's a whole methodology. It's a system. It's not just about one specific point in time. Things are so intertwined. Right. So let's say your baby woke up 45 minutes from the second nap, cooing, content, hanging out. Sounds pretty good. Okay. I'm probably going to get her up. I might give her a couple of minutes. One of the greatest things you can do is like be an observer. When I hear my child, can I wait two, three minutes, watch them on the monitor and read their body language and correlate their sounds and look for tired signs or signs that they're content. Okay. Now let's say you're only getting 45 minute naps. So usually in the newborn stage, you, you know, a lot of people get a long morning nap. that's like one to two hours. It's not right. an extension of the nighttime sleep. So if you're not getting that, your child wakes up at 45 minutes and they're crying. It's like, Hmm, what's bugging you? Do you need to burp? Are you snacking and you're actually hungry now because that last feed wasn't very good? What could it be? Can I go in and try and extend that nap? I pick them up, see if they need to burp. 
I mean, if you're really desperate, do I just nurse them back to sleep to extend that, that nap? Because we feel like the first feed wasn't that good. How can you help make sleep longer? That's a big thing. Cause I feel like a lot of parents are like, Oh, they're awake. And then they pounce, right. It pounce to get them up, but it's your job to know when sleep needs to happen. And then evaluating if nap is long enough. Well, and I think any parents who have older kids can relate. Um, maybe on a weekend, we'll be out at a party or with friends or something. And our kids don't get to bed till midnight. They still wake up at seven 30. If they go to bed at eight o'clock, they wake up at seven 30. It's it. So it's, it's like, they still are waking up, but now they're just overtired the next day and they're grouchy. So this is why we don't allow sleepovers in my house because they come home and they are exhausted and they are in a bad mood the entire next day. But if we think about that, and these are my, you know, six, seven, eight year olds, if we think about that in terms of baby, it really lines up. If they're overtired, they're not getting that good sleep and then they're grouchy. And then it's like a whole cycle thing. So how do you break that cycle then? If, if they are overtired and you just like, can't get onto a good routine. Well, the, the first thing is timing. Like I've had lots of people that come to me and they say they sleep fine at night, but they will not nap during the day. And first thing we look at is start watching the clock and knowing that you have to get them down and swaddling is super helpful. A lot of people swaddle at night, but they're afraid to swaddle for naps, but definitely we, we did it. Okay. The, sorry. I, that I hear a lot of times with dream on baby, people will say mm-hmm. I use it at night. It helps my baby th- sleep through the night. We love it. And we're so nervous to use it for naps because we think it will then lose its effect during the night. I'm like, no, not at all. (laughs) But tell me why people think that, that, that if they use a certain technique or a swaddle or like ours weighted sleep sacks, that it Mm -hmm. would be less effective at night if they use it during the day. What's the rationale behind that? They're just afraid. They just don't know what they don't know. And they're afraid. And the other one is often that they're just afraid of having their child contained that much, right? They don't, they don't necessarily want that, but you know, tummy time. Yeah. You know, tummy time counteracts all that. And it's great for their heads too. Like when back to sleep, that whole movement, yep. you know, increased. Yep. Well, so did the incidence of flathead. You see and... all those babies with their little head helmet on. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of dark. Yeah. Actually. yeah. So back to sleep. Had that, but I was, like, I, I, I don't want to say I ever secretly wished it, but all the kids with those helmets, I just thought it was very cute. Like ever. Yeah. 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 So back to sleep and tummy to play. Got mm-hmm. it. Okay. Sorry. Side note on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, backs to sleep, backs to sleep. That's what we do. We always put them down on their back, but you always want to be working on tummy time, even like very, very early on, um, as early as four weeks, you want to be doing tummy time, putting on the mat on the floor, like every awake time, even if it's just starting out to be like three minutes, four minutes, just start doing that right away. And it's also a great habit to be putting them down on the floor and then walking away. Yeah. Cause that's what you're eventually going to be doing at night. Right. So getting them used to that. I work with so many kids that are held all the time. How will they ever expect to sleep by themselves? They're never alone. Right. So getting them used to that, that mom and dad always come back. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I think that rolls pretty good into, um, age appropriate bedtimes. If we're getting people on a routine and now we're keeping their naps a little bit longer, when are they supposed to go to sleep? Yeah. Yeah. So research shows that newborn sleep is highly irregulated. Okay. Because they're not producing their own melatonin, which is the chemical, the hormone that tells your brain when it's time to sleep. Okay. They don't produce that on their own until somewhere between nine and 12 weeks. And that's when the witching period starts to decrease too. Okay. So nine o'clock is a great bedtime for babies less than let's say two months. Okay. Around three months, we're getting up to eight o'clock and then around four months, we're getting into that seven o'clock hour. 
That's very average. We still try and base it on when they woke up from their last nap, but it gets complicated, right? Because you have that witching period where kids are want to be cluster feeding. They've got competing needs of fatigue and hunger. They're cluster feeding because they want to stack up on calories to get their longest stretch of nighttime sleep, which is usually at the beginning of the night. And if you're breastfeeding, your milk supply is the lowest that time of day too. So they want to like eat more often to try and stack up on calories. But Yeah. But with the helping baby sleep method, the idea is that you're stacking calories all day long. Right. And really telling your body that I eat every three hours, especially if you're breastfeeding and that helps your body know what to predict and what to prepare for. And then, um, yeah, bedtime, it doesn't have to be a really long routine either. Like 10 minutes. You don't have to do a bath if you don't want to, it can be helpful, but not necessary. Like it shouldn't be this two hour ordeal. Tell me that because our bedtime is a solid two hours. I do have four kids. So maybe it's like 30 minutes each, but I I actually always thought the bedtime routine, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be elaborate, but was always really, really important. Like very important, but don't forget we're talking about the newborn stage though. Yeah. So the newborn stage, the bath is optional. Okay. Scientifically, the purpose of it is to help increase your body temperature, which then actually allows it to drop. And the dropping is what helps you sleep. Okay. Okay. However, if your kid's fussy, skip the bath, right? Skip the bath. For most people, the bath is not the be all and the end all. For some of you, it works really well. After four months to me, the bath is also optional, but the messaging, yes, Tara, you're right. It's very important. Same sequence of events every night helps your child learn what to expect coming into the room, getting the lights, maybe playing a lullaby, set the stage for sleep, singing. Maybe you have feeding in there, or maybe you do feeding before, you know, whatever suits you and then getting them down, changing diapers and pajamas to me is the key. Yeah. That's the, always the one at bedtime, differentiating the nighttime routine from the daytime routine. I am thinking back to the, um, the bedtime routine when, when my, I mean, my my kids now are three, six, seven, and nine, and it's people want to watch a show and then they need a drink. Like, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. it just gets extended. But I am thinking back to, especially when I had only one, um, her bedtime routine was pretty quick. The, I mean, we, I think we did a bath pretty much every night and then, oh, I did, um, I would do like baby massage with her sometimes, which I loved. And I'd like put lotion on her skin. So it became extended, but honestly, in hindsight, I think a lot of that was just for me. Cause I was a first time mom and I was like, I love this. Like mm-hmm. with my first, I mean, we were literally like riding on unicorns together into the sunset. And then it just has been chaos since more and more kids, my kids are really close in age. Um, but I did, I do remember like that was these, these, um, especially cause I worked right. So that was really my bonding yes. time with my baby. And so mm-hmm. we would rock and we would read and we would sing. And like, it was really the only time I had with her in the day. So I think for me, I extended that and made it really long, but interesting mm-hmm. to know it, you know, it's, it's not, it's not totally necessary to have a long drawn out thing. And even like a 10 minute block with a newborn is, newborn. is acceptable. Yeah. That, and that being said, just to manage ex- people's expectations, I will say sometimes it will take you an hour to actually get them down. Right. And that people are like, is this normal? Yes. Unfortunately, for the most part, it takes quite a while for a lot of people. Now, how old um, do you feel like the baby is when they create those sleep associations? So like with my son, um, I, I created my baby, but it wasn't until he was six months old. And so he was definitely older, but he would see the sleep sack and he would start crying because he knew it was bedtime. And then we, Mm -hmm. I feel like we eventually got to a spot where he just accepted like more during the day, not at night, but like okay, it's a nap time. Like he almost accepted it. And he was like, I see it. I know, like, I'm going to put it on. We're going to go to bed now. How early can baby associate sleep cue or sleep associations like that? I think it's as early as four to eight weeks. I think that's when you're imprinting what sleep looks like for them. Yeah. 
So it is yeah. really critical to start that, that sleep um, shaping immediately, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it can be extremely helpful if you missed it because a lot of people will miss that because they're so they're, they're having trouble feeding or they've got reflux or they've got a call of baby. And if that's you and you're listening to this panicking, don't worry. You can still work on sleep habits later on the proactive people who are, don't have any of those issues. Yeah. You can like totally ace sleep in the four to eight week period by working on these things and putting them down awake. Not, and that's the other thing about the book we, we say how drowsy, but awake is setting us all up to fail. Because if you understand that sleep's a learned habit, if your child has to be rocked or have a bottle to be drowsy, and then they wake up in the night, you can see that they would expect that same type of thing to help them go back to sleep, right? So we teach in the book, we teach the calm but awake method in the newborn stage, how to get them down, calm but awake, falling asleep in that bassinet, which is the long-term solution where you want them to be sleeping long-term. I think that's actually such a great point. And forgive me because, you know, we never want anybody listening to say, um, you know, I didn't do it right, or I missed the window, or it's too late for me because sleep training, sleep shaping, you tell your clients can happen at any time. You're like, you've never missed the window. No, it's a learned habit. When you understand that you're like, Oh, okay. I work with kids up to age four. Yeah. Yeah. Up to age four. I mean, we get people, um, that reach out that are just panicked, like, Oh my gosh, I know this would help my child, but they're 18 months now. And like, we haven't been sleeping for 18 months. And we've just accepted it. And I'm like, no, like that's not, you know, another thing is I I think a lot of parents just think in the first three months, I am not going to get sleep. Like I'm going to be awake day and night and I'm accepting that. And that just is what it is. And it is true to a degree that when you do have a newborn, you know, they're eating and they're feeding and they're having these really short windows, but you can do things to extend those times that they're sleeping and training. So I, I really love everything you said. This is all such good information. And I have all my notes. (laughs) I'm sure everybody listening is, is furiously writing things down. Sarah, anything else you would say on this topic? Yeah. In the newborn stage, my last thought would to you would be, it's your job to be a really good detective, a newborn detective, because it's not necessarily just about the sleep at this age. It's really about sleeping and feeding sleeping and feeding. You got to figure out why it's not working for you. If you're really struggling with some of these tips, if they're not working for you, what else could be going on? I love that. I want to be a detective in every area of my life, especially a sleep detective. Sarah, that is awesome. Okay. We're going to do a quick fire round. So what are you currently binging on TV? I'm currently braining out to Virgin River right now. Okay. I've heard that from a couple people. Um, And what is the most um, recent book you've read? Oh my gosh. I'm the worst at remembering book titles. I had to create a Goodreads account, but I loved all of Leanne Moriarty. Like those, she's from Australia. I loved those, all of those books. And then what is a productivity app that you use? Um, I would say Google Calendar is a great productivity app because you can block things out really easily and um, allocate time to do certain things. Solid, protecting the time. Um, what is your go-to de-stressor? Walking my dog and cuddling with my dog. She's a one-year-old Maltipoo. She's a Maltese poodle because we have allergies and she's like, she looks like a teddy bear. She's the cutest thing ever. Oh, so cute. Okay, you'll have to send me a picture of that after because that okay. I've seen those before. They are darling. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Where can everybody find you? 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I always love talking about sleep and sharing these to my, you know, it's Freudian. I'm sharing this all to my postpartum anxiety ridden self who just didn't, didn't know. And you can find me at helpingbabysleep.com and on Instagram, same handle. And, you know, if you liked what we talked about today, I have a ton of blog posts. I've been, you know, blogging since 2013. And there's also the book, The Helping Baby Sleep Method, The Art and Science of Teaching Your Baby to Sleep available on Amazon. And if you're looking for a, for, a few more like specific tips, I have a great six questions sleep quiz on my website. It's helpingbabysleep.com forward slash sleep dash quiz for kiddos zero to two years of age. And that quiz is amazing. I've taken it a couple times from like different lenses of different parents and it is so spot on the answers and it really sets you up for success to know, you know, do you need to speak with a sleep consultant? Can you kind of figure it out on your own? Do you need to buy Dr. Mitchell's book? what is your next step? So definitely go check out her website. We'll include it all in the show notes. Dr. Sarah Mitchell, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 